Hello, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. I'm your host, Niall Green, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about that much misunderstood subject, Islamic law. There are four schools or madhabs of Sunni Islamic law, each named after their founders. And in this episode, we're going to be talking about the Shafi'i school of Sunni Islamic law, named after Imam Shafi'i, who died in the year 820. He was born in what's now Palestine and died in what's now Egypt. But over the following centuries, the principles of legal interpretation that he laid down in his writings were explored, expounded, debated and disagreed upon by a whole range of followers in his tradition. As time went by, those followers spread across and beyond the Middle East, ultimately spreading from Egypt and southern Arabia, across East Africa, right the way down to the southern tip of East Africa in today's Cape Town, and further east across the coasts of southern India, Sri Lanka, Malaysia, the Maldives, and ultimately through the islands of Indonesia and even the southern Philippines. But not everyone had exactly the same opinion as Imam Ashafi himself. Indeed, the processes, the procedures, the tradition of Islamic law that we'll be looking at and discussing today was actually defined by, or indeed defined through, debate, discussion and disagreement, creating then not so much a monolithic entity of Islamic law, but a whole series of positions and opinions. After all, the word opinion is the English equivalent to the Arabic term fatwa. Finding out then about how these fatwas and legal opinions came about through discussion, debate, is our topic today. And leading us in this conversation is Professor Mahmoud Kouria. He holds positions at Leiden University in the Netherlands and also at Ashoka University in India. And he's the author of Islamic Law in Circulation, Shafi'i Texts Across the Indian Ocean and the Mediterranean, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Mahmoud, welcome to Akbar's Chamber. Thank you, uh, Nairi, and thank you for having me. Oh, it's a real pleasure to have you here and speaking all the way uh, from, from Delhi. So today we're going to be talking about one of the four Sunni schools of Islamic law or Sharia, specifically the Shafi'i school. So to start us off, Mahmoud, can you explain how we should broadly conceive Sharia itself and sketch for us the 
emergence and the functions of the different schools or madhabs of the Sunni legal tradition. Okay. So Sharia is a word that is widely used in multiple contexts in, you know, whether uh, by the right wing, uh, extreme right wing uh, politicians or uh, people who argue uh, to establish a particular stream of uh, religious uh, state or so forth. Uh, but Sharia literally stands for uh, the law, uh, which is God's uh, law. A man, by definition, and therefore, it's it's basically a collection of abstract uh, principles and guidelines and rules. Uh, the idea is that these are uh, God or Allah uh, commanded uh, people to follow. But uh, the main problem is that because it is very divine or very holy, there is hardly anything uh, tangible uh, as as a as a uh, concrete uh, gatebook or uh, rule of uh, or set of rules. And for example, the Quran, which is you know the foundation text of the Quran uh, of the of Islam, uh, the major problem with the Quran is that there is hardly anything legal. In the text or you know you can say that uh, at least there are about only 500 uh, verses in the quran that are very directly related to law and the rest uh, are not you know uh, there is hardly anything to do with law and therefore you know once you, once we say 500 verses that means that is only one tenth or less than one tenth of the ender uh, quran so uh, basically what we have uh, is uh, in terms of Islamic law is the uh, what can be identified as fiqh. And fiqh is the Arabic term that stands for Islamic law. And it is the human interpretations of uh, divine law or human uh, interpretations of Sharia. And the fiqh can be divided into uh, broadly two categories. One is a theoretical interpretation and the other a substantive uh, or positive law as they they would call it. So one you can call it legal theory which uh, which in Arabic uh, uh, scholars use the term usul al-fiqh. So the foundations of the or the theories or principles of the fiqh and uh, that is mainly the methodology uh, or the, uh, the theory of law. And the second is the substantive law, or people also call it as positive law. So uh, that is, you know, the Arabic term usually stands for is furul fiqh. So there are uh, in the Sunni tradition within the Sunni uh, or within the Muslim communities are these Sunni Shia, which are the major divisions, but there are also the Ibadis, which is an equally important uh, division, uh, stream of thought. And in all these uh, uh, factions or sections uh, of Islamic legal, Islamic tradition, Islamic intellectual tradition, there are multiple uh, legal interpretations. So the substantive law or legal theory uh, are interpreted completely differently uh, within the Sunni tradition, within the Shia tradition, and within the Ibadi tradition. And that is, and that is uh, or the interpretations of law are something that define uh, some of the divisions within these traditions. So with uh, in the Sunni tradition, there are four major schools. Uh, there were many more uh, in at the beginning. 
but eventually they were uh, streamlined into four major tradition, uh, four major schools. So these schools are usually identified with the Arabic term malhab, uh, and uh, in the Sunni tradition there are the uh, four uh, major, the most important ones: the Hanafi tradition, uh, the Hanafi malhab, the Shafi malhab, the Maliki malhab, and then the Hanbali malhab. And the divisions or the pluralities of opinions within uh, uh, these uh, malhabs or within these schools, as well as in between these schools, are, uh, we can say, a hallmark of uh, the uh, Islamic legal tradition. So within the fiqh, we have these pluralities of, of opinions or league, you know, today legal pluralism, not today, but like at least in the 20th century onward the legal pluralism is a is a uh, catchword in the legal scholarship uh, but this was a trademark so to speak of the islamic uh, legal tradition so we have the sunni uh, shi'i ibadi factions and within the sunni tradition there are multiple legal schools that and within each legal school whether we, uh, we take Hanafi at uh, school or whether we take the Shafi school, there are again a lot of uh, you know opinions and a lot of uh, contradictions. Many of these opinions are contradictory, and it was often up to the uh, commoner or up to the believer uh, or up to the uh, jurist to take which opinion uh, they would like to follow. And there is a uh, old tradition that goes in you know, it's often ascribed to the prophet it says something like this which roughly translates as uh, you know the uh, differences of opinion among scholars uh, are basically a blessing for the community so the, the community or you know whether the leader or the follower they could uh, take all these opinions which, uh, you know depending on the context uh, appropriate so uh, of course there were a lot of uh, attempts to seize these pluralities and to standardize to codify uh, to uh, canonize different traditions but then despite of the codification attempts despite of the uh, standardization attempts these pluralities of opinions uh, survived across the uh, across the tradition, across the Islamic intellectual tradition. So to go back, basically Sharia as such doesn't mean much, whereas the fiqh, uh, which is the human interpretations of the Sharia, that is something that is historically evolved uh, uh, within the Sunni tradition, within the uh, Ibadi tradition, within the Shi'i tradition. And in the Sunni tradition, which is the uh, which is something that the majority of Muslims follow, we have these four schools, and I mainly focus on the Shafi school of law, which is the focus of the book that I recently published. Well, thank you, Mahmoud. That's really so so helpful in giving us this initial orientation, I suppose. I mean, as we've seen, the word Sharia, that's the kind of sometimes a sort of a, I don't know, a flag word, a flag, a danger word sometimes when used in English. And But, you know, helping us orientate, I mean, it's it's a word that, of course, it's an Arabic word. It's sort of related to like a word meaning like the, the broad way, isn't it? It's a bit like if we go to Egypt today with we'll, other Arab countries, was we'll Shat al Jumhuri, which will simply mean the broad way, the the Republic Avenue or something, isn't it? But but as, as you've explained for us, and actually when we get down to the details of actually the 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 doing or the creating or the discussing, uh, 
the interpreting of this thing Sharia. Actually, the the Sharia is less important than than these terms you mentioned, such as fiqh, often translated into English as jurisprudence, isn't it? And what this really involves is is different scholars trained in these different schools of interpretation. These four madhabs, as you the four Sunni madhabs that have survived, as you mentioned, and it's a question of, of in a sense the different rules or the different methods of of, of these, these acts of human interpretation, this usul al-fiqh, as you, as you mentioned, the, the roots or one might say even the principles or the rules and the methods of, of making jurisprudential interpretations. And then, as you mentioned, the then different legal scholars will come to different opinions. And that word opinion, the Arabic, is the fatwa, isn't it? A legal opinion. So, so and, and there are many such legal opinions, and that's how the actual the work of Islamic legal interpretation has come about rather than being this one thing called sharia that is an islamic law you've given us this sense then there are actually these four major sunny law schools of interpretation which enable then a whole series of uh, in principle an infinite number of, of scholars to come to different opinions which are sort of you know valid in their different ways because they're based upon the Quran, the interpretation of the Quran, the interpretation of the Hadith of the Prophet Muhammad, and the varying use across the different four schools, the four different madhabs of of, of these two other principles, chaos of uh, of interpretation. So, well, I suppose analogical, analogical reasoned interpretation. So, the use of reason then in making interpretation, and and the use of analogy, I suppose, you know. Uh, and indeed, ijma, the consensus of scholars, if, if lots of people come to the same opinion, then that's a more valid opinion than others. So these different sort of methods then. So, yeah, I think to help us start off then, that's sort of giving the sense that there's, there's not this one thing, Islamic law, that's always been there. There have been this evolving set of opinions and, and the sets of opinions, I guess, we'll be talking about are the, are the your specialty then, which you've written this fascinating recent book about then, the, the, of the, the Shafi'i school Founded by Imam Shafi'i, who well was born in Gaza, in, uh, in 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 Palestine, and died in in Cairo, but lived much of his life then in in the Hejaz, Mecca, and Medina, as well as in Baghdad, the key early centres then of of the formation then of the Islamic legal tradition. So, let's turn then to the the Shafi'i school, and uh, can you tell us more about how, when, where, and with whom this? tradition, this school of interpretation, then this madhab that we call Shafism, how it developed? Yes, de uh, definitely. Uh, so because, uh, well, this is, uh, you know, uh, human interpretations of uh, divine law, what happened is that immediately after the death of Prophet and also his immediate companions, there were a lot of debates or discussions among his, the followers of his companions and the followers who came after how to interpret law. You know, one because there is the Quran, but then as we mentioned, the Quran is very uh, less useful uh, in terms of, you know, as a law, as a source of law. It is a, it is a very useful source of law, but like, you know, as a gate, as a law book is very rarely useful. And the same goes with the Hadith also, because it's also, again, uh, there are a lot of uh, hadith which are the uh, sayings and deeds and silences of the prophet. 
So all these are useful as sources of law, but they are not clearly, you know, the uh, rule book or the law book or the constitution. So people had different approaches of how to, you know, utilize these sources. And as you rightly pointed out, there were the, you know, different methods such as qiyas, the analogical reasoning or the ijma, the scholarly consensus. Uh, all these basically, you know, standard got standardized much later. Uh, so the main trend within the Sunnis, there were two groups, so to speak. One said that, you know, we have to go back to the customs and uh, traditions uh, of the Prophet and the way uh, the Prophet Muhammad, as well as his immediate companions in the, you know, in the city of Medina practiced. So this group basically, you know, uh, gave priority for the um uh, the traditions vis-a-vis rationalist you know a group who said like okay you know all these customs and traditions as practiced in the city they are uh, applicable but then they are very limited so we also use our own reason you know rational thinking in order to infer new rules because the problems are much diverse the islamic community itself is expanding the political expansion the demographic expansion is happening on a daily basis so they brought up uh, brought with the idea of you know uh, rational uh, analogy or you know multiple methods of rational inference inferences or interpretations of the same sources so these two groups one based on ration and the other based on tradition these were the two major groups uh, so uh, you know and they are the two foundational schools of the sunni tradition so one is the maliki the first one which is based on the tradition of madina uh, which is you know eventually uh, came uh, to be identified as the Maliki school after the eponymous founder Malik bin Anas. And the second group was based out of Kufa, uh, mainly Kufa, but also uh, the surrounding places. And the eponymous founder for that was Abu Hanifa. So these were two major uh, groups and, you know, there were a lot of debates and discussions within them. And uh, in between or after these two groups uh, came uh, my hero, uh, Shafi, Imam Shafi, uh, who, as you pointed out, you know, uh, uh, traveled across the Middle East, uh, you know, from such a young age, he was, uh, whether he was born in Palestine or Yemen, it is something that people debate. Mm. But uh, when he was a small child, he would travel to Madi, uh, to Mecca and then eventually to Medina uh, with his mother and he studied uh, there. And then from there, he also went to all different other, uh, all other different places. Uh, so he said, you know, uh, he sort of took a middle path instead of going exclusively with the traditionalist approach or with the rationalist approach. He, you know, sort of uh, took a reconciliatory path saying that we will uh, use a bit of tradition, a bit of uh, a bit of rationalist approach. So he had disagreements with both tradition, both uh, both methods, but he also had a lot of agreements. And that is something immediately caught a lot of attention. Uh, both in Baghdad as well as uh, in Egypt uh, or Cairo, where he eventually moved and died. So in these places, uh, basically a huge followership immediately uh, gathered uh, for Shafi. And he is the founder of the third school. 
but then eventually he also had the a lot of criti- he also had a lot of criticism especially one of his disciples and what is interesting is that all these foundation founders of these main uh, four schools they were basically disciples of one another disciples or teachers of one another so they were like you know basically the agreements or disagreements were very intellectual basically coming out of the same micro circles of you know teachers and students which eventually basically the overall framework of human interpretations for divine law gave this space for having you know multiple opinions and multiple takes on how to interpret uh, god's law so uh, uh the fourth uh, school that is the uh, hanbali tradition uh, ahmad bin hanbal he was a student of imam shafi uh, and then he he thought now uh, imam shafi is taking this you know his approaches too far is more inclined towards ration uh, than the tradition and he thought no 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 we have to stick to the tradition and he became very traditionalist uh, you know or his um, uh commitment towards the basic or the foundational scriptures of islam were, were was more uh, than shafi so that became eventually became the fourth tradition and there are many other schools also that came but these are four major schools that uh, eventually got uh, standardized and imam shafi and his two disciples there were many disciples so he himself had a lot of you know changes in his uh, you know standpoints in in the way he approached as a as just like any human being as just like any organic intellectual you know he changed many of his opinions on the base of the context in which he lived in so there are like you know within his tradition within his lifetime there were two uh, uh, main streams that people often identify the old school as well as the new school or the old stream and the new, new stream within the shafi school or within the shafi madhab so the old one is often identified with his lifetime in uh, baghdad in iraq while the new uh, stream is identified with his later life in egypt so and there are a lot of you know disagreements you know that he disagrees with him his own earlier uh, opinions and the same uh, organic way of interpreting law can be seen among his disciples as well so uh, in both places uh, both in baghdad as well as in cairo he had a lot of disciples uh, who interpreted shafi's teachings uh, in multiple ways so in both these places uh, a lot of students evolved uh, or students started to continue the teachings of shafi in different ways and that is something that eventually uh, so imam shafi died uh, around 820 mm-hmm. uh, of common era uh, and by the end of 9th century so about um, uh, 6 7 dec- uh, decades later uh, the the whole teachings of shafi was almost you know uh, formed a cult or a school of its own uh-huh. and uh, people started to follow his method and what is interesting about Shafi is that even though his main commitment or his main uh, uh, body of work was in the substantive law which is you know basically like you know the lot of rules and regulations on everyday issues uh, rituals uh, commercial transactions business crimes and all sort of different things but he also is one of the influence uh, influential figures who uh, wrote on legal theory 
So his uh, work, which is called uh, Risala on legal legal theory, which is uh, which became something you know a trendsetter across the Sunni tradition, something that you know many people could follow. But also the other work on the substantive law, which is uh, called Al Um, uh, which literally translates the mother. So it is a mother text, you know, or a textual matriarch for the ender uh, traditions or the ender texts that would eventually emerge uh, in the Shafi tradition. And we see a lot of scholars uh, or his followers, both in uh, Iraq as well as in Egypt, and eventually their disciples taking his uh, teachings across the uh, across uh, Iran, across uh, Central Asia, and then eventually to Indian Ocean. And now we have the largest followers of this school uh, in the largest Muslim country, that is in Indonesia. So all these places eventually, uh, you know, uh, got subscribed or got attracted to his uh, his teachings over several centuries. Well, yeah, that's great because we're getting this sense then of these, in a sense, two... Well, I guess this spectrum or these two, I guess, poles, I suppose, between use of, as you said, of rationality of reason and the deference to tradition and all of the different, the four law schools or, or indeed the others that sort of disappeared or didn't succeed, I suppose, agreed that, yeah, the Quran, of course, is foundational, the Hadith, the reports of the sayings and actions of the Prophet Muhammad. OK, but as you mentioned, these don't cover all of the possibilities of things that people will do or the, the infinite possibilities of of human situations particularly as you've said as, as as the demography of the islamic world changes as people become muslims in as far as the philippines or as far as west africa or, or wherever it might be of course obviously in europe as well in the medieval as well as the the modern period as well so yeah how does one interpret the quran and the hadith then for all these other situations of human life that need adjudication or indeed lead, need moral kind of advice so reason and tradition and and i think you've also given us this really helpful impression of the, the intensity of debate and disagreement and there's a whole as you will know better than than i do mahmoud there's a whole series of of, of texts and treatises on the ethics and the sort of the etiquette of disagreement that sort of you know let's say i suppose the equivalent i suppose would be something i, I dare say in the the British House of Commons. I mean, I'm from Britain, so I kind of think of, well, yeah, there's a whole sort of rules of how you debate in the, in the House of Commons. You know? and, and the the, the the scholars of Islamic law were, were had these rules of ikhtilaf, rules of disagreement as well, because as you said, people would be disagreeing with their own teachers and so on as well, their own professors. And this really makes me think in many ways of the rabbinical tradition, isn't it? Which is sort of, you know, a, a tradition of intense debate and often disagreement of interpreting, uh, obviously, of the, the Hebrew Bible and indeed other uh, Jewish texts. Of course, one can't take the analogy too far because hence the point of, let's say, more of applied law that obviously in the Islamic case, there are many states run by Muslims throughout the centuries. But of course, I'm deliberately not using the term Islamic state because medieval and pre-modern or indeed pre-late 20th century states run by Muslims were they might have had a certain amount of of Sharia input or or relying upon Islamic jurists, the Islamic juridical tradition. They might have had a certain amount of, of Turkish or Ottoman, Mongol 
whatever else it might be, kind of regional customs as well, which of course is another part of the Islamic re tradition as well, the, the extent to which uh, local custom, not necessarily Islamic customs, you know, kind of are brought into, are recognized as being legitimate in a given case as well. But we're sticking with the Shafi'is. And, and you've given us this hint that of the, of the geography of, let's say, the, the Shafi world, if, if one can coin a phrase. Um, because although Imam Shafi died, as you mentioned, in, in Cairo in the, the year 820 of the, of the Western calendar, um, nowadays, most of his followers are, are found quite far away. I mean, there are some in southern Egypt, um, but... And, but mostly we tend to think of Shafism now as a kind of an, in, an Indian Ocean sort of legal tradition from the southern coast of, of Arabia and or the eastern coast of Arabia and Yemen, in the whole coast of East Africa from Somalia all the way downwards through what's now Tanzania, the coast of southern India, Sri Lanka, as you mentioned, Indonesia, also Malaysia, and right and the, the Maldives and right over to the southern Philippines, the Muslim communities there. And this is kind of because... In the centuries after the death of Shafi and and uh, the I suppose the 1600s, the rise of the Ottoman Empire and the Safavid Shi'i Empire in Iran had sort of uh, replaced Middle Eastern Shafiism with these other law schools, the Shi'i law schools of, of Iran, which are still there today, and the, the Hanafi law school promoted by the Ottomans. So Shafiism has this big big geography, but but the geography now is sort of Easter in the Eastern uh, Islamic world around the Indian Ocean. So having sort of sketched out then that sort of that, I guess, that, that geography of, 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 uh, of, of Shafi's, and let's, let's turn back to these debates that, you know, you, you were bringing up for us and flesh them out a bit more. So what were some of the, the key debates in which Shafi legal scholars were, were involved? And, uh, and how did these debates resonate then with their communities across this wide geography then, whether in the Mediterranean, perhaps in the earlier mm -hmm. period or, or in East Africa and regions of South and Southeast Asia as the centuries went by. Yeah. Uh, what is interesting is that, you know, uh, Shafi was certainly the originator of the discourse. But, you know, uh, what is interesting is about the ideas uh, is that once you begin the idea, then you uh, lose control of how basically the idea uh, develops or how people... Uh, 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 you know, develop on the idea. So wh what happened with the Shafi tradition is more or less the same. Of course, his teachings and uh, his text uh, became, uh, continued to be relevant across the across centuries. But uh, because it attracted a huge followership in uh, before it went to South Asia, Southeast Asia, East Africa, it became very popular in Egypt. It became popular in Syria, in Iran, you know, Central Asia, many, many places. So in all these places, people interpreted his own teachings in multiple uh, ways and often in contradictory uh, ways. And this, uh, again, led, you know, just similar to this is almost like a history repeating uh, itself where, uh, again, the same methodological questions of how to interpret uh, the tradition, the is Islamic law, whether on the base of the tradition or whether on the base of the ration uh, or reason is something that become, you know, uh, continued to be continued to be discussed within the Shafi tradition. 
so uh, people uh, you know in terms of interpreting shafi's own teachings people had uh, had the same debates you know whether to follow the tradition or whether to follow the uh, rational approach and not only that many other uh, you know ways of interpreting shafi's teachings uh, became uh, a hot issue in several areas uh, several areas so uh, one immediate uh, division Uh, that we see within the followers of the shafi was something that we uh, scholars broadly identify within the tradition but also outside the tradition is that a division between the khurasani uh, followers as well as the baghdadi you know or the iraqi uh, followers and, and khurasan uh, sorry yeah khurasan being sort of eastern iran western afghanistan isn't it, that kind of area yeah yeah so the greater uh, central asian many central asian or iranian uh, region but also uh, the iraqi uh, school sub school so these these two became sort of sub schools within the shafi tradition and people disagreed on uh, you know on multiple ways you know whether uh, from such uh, trivial like you know issues that often might appear uh, very trivial to us for example the age of marriage you know especially for uh, a lady a vis-a-vis a man some you know it became a huge uh, point of contestation between these yeah, two traditions yeah, yeah understandably and, it's not so trivial yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so uh, similarly the, uh, we we see you know uh, uh, representatives of uh, both factions fighting one and uh, one over the other uh, in terms of how to interpret these uh, legal questions and it also applied on several uh, was applied to several other issues so this division uh, interestingly as we look at from a historical point of view this sort of divisions within the tradition contributed what i would say contributed to the you know development and expansion of shafi's teachings basically through division the tradition itself kept dynamic and alive and people started to you know continue uh, to go back to his teachings but also to advance it in their own way so basically the division meant uh, more expansion the more division the more expansion and this is something uh, that we continue to see throughout the uh, period and in between we have this very interesting figure called imam nawawi uh, who uh, comes from damascus who came from uh, damascus in the 13th century and uh, he thought like you know basically uh, this is too much you know the divisions between these khurasanis and baghdadis and he being you know neither uh, geographically positioned in khurasan or in baghdad he uh, you know coming from damascus he thought of you know reconciling again these divisions and he codified uh, shafi law uh, or shafi's teachings and i would say or i dare say that he is the basic or is the originate not the originate or the founder of the shafi madhab you know of course the shafi is the originator but then now he, we have never we who brought together you know these multiple opinions into something very standardized or codified uh, set of rules and uh, he came uh, about uh, he came about a time when you know the islamic world itself was you know facing a lot of crises you know uh, he came in the uh, late 13th century he was born in 
1233, but he lived lived most of his time immediately after the collapse of the Abbasid, you know, uh, caliphate after the Mongol invasion, and the Islamic law, along with many other disciplines and Islamic institutions, uh, were going through uh, was going through a lot of crises. So his uh, writings often address many of these issues, many of the crises at that time, you know, that the Muslims were facing at that time. Uh, just like, you know, many jurists of his time were, you know, and we see that I often like to see uh, 13th century, the late 13th century as a period of codification across Islamic uh, realm, but also beyond Islamic realm, we see you know, whether it's in the uh, canonical, uh, canon law uh, tradition or rabbinical law tradition or many other traditions, we see 13th century as a point in which, you know, several of the legal traditions are codified. So Navavi also is part of that tradition and he codified Islamic law. And he wrote several texts in Shafi tradition, but one text specifically became, you know, something like a revolutionary in the Shafi. It's called Minhaj Twalibin. So it's basically a guide to students, uh, but it's a text in which uh, the whole divisions and you know debates within the Shafi tradition are sort of standardized and codified into something like of a almost like a textbook. But at the same time, it's not just an introductory textbook. Textbook. It is something that people even in the advanced level could uh, use, and the text became immediately you know we, we can say. A hit uh, that it attracted, you know, hundreds of comment commentaries and super commentaries, super super commentaries, over sorry, over several uh, centuries. And what we see uh, that uh, you know immediately after his lifetime in 13th century, we see that in 14th century, in 15th century, in 16th century, several scholars in Syria, in Egypt, in uh, Hijaz, and in many other places writing commentaries. So what I basically do or try to do in my book is how uh, the legacy of Imam Navavi uh, continued uh, you know, in South Asia, in South Arabia, as well as in East Africa and other places, basically following the afterlife of uh, this one text that I just mentioned. So a lot of commentaries and super commentaries, something that uh, for several uh, generations of scholarship uh, neglected as, you know, uh, less innovative, unoriginal, uh, you know, I would like to explore why these commentarial traditions uh, remain, you know, so active across, across a vast stretch of uh, geographical as well as chronological uh, terrain. So something I would like, uh, something that I wanted to explore in order to see how the Shafi tradition itself continued to be uh, relevant in uh, across across centuries. I often define traditions as conversations that continue for centuries and I think that's what you're you know describing for us here in this Shafi tradition so how did the Shafi legal tradition continue this conversation or indeed set of you know debates uh, over the centuries but without sacrificing its living relevance to these communities that are expanding and no doubt 
changing with different historical conditions as the centuries rolled by. Uh, yeah, uh, the what is interesting in uh, in this long tradition of the com you know writing commentaries and debating the same ideas across several centuries, I often think of these as you know what Brodel would say uh, of you know ideas are almost like a geographical structure, something like a mountain uh, or an ocean. You know, if you observe it. Uh, you may not see any change. But if you observe it over a thousand years, then you would see a lot of changes within the tradition. So uh, immediately to our naked eyes, the changes may not be that visible. Uh, but then, you know, over centuries, similarly, the ideas also, like, you know, the tradition or the conservative, people often uh, like to identify many of these traditions as very conservative, very rigid, very orthodox, where the change is almost impossible. Whereas what we see when we observe the commandarial, super commandarial, super, super commandarial tradition is that uh, the basic fact that people uh, wrote commentaries on a uh, text uh, while have you know already having several other commentaries uh, basically emerged from the fact that uh, they thought, you know, they would like to add their own voice, you know, or they thought there's something lacking in the particular context or a particular situation. Uh, so many of these commentaries or uh, writing commentaries on, let's say, Minhaj Talibin of Navavi, and I just mentioned that many of them wrote a lot of commentaries, uh, you know, hundreds of commentaries. And most of these commentaries are process of vernacularization. So people, uh, you know, basically by writing a commentary, let's say a scholar from Egypt writing a commentary, vis-a-vis -vis a scholar, another scholar writing a commentary from Hijaz or India, they uh, add their own, you know, local flavors into the huge, large interpretation of, you know, uh, divine law. So uh, something like, you know, the new technologies uh, appearing uh, into the scenario or new uh, problems such as like, you know, for example, in the book, I uh, discuss about, you know, uh, one commentator from Mecca writing about, you know, the Meccans consuming a lot of weed, you know, available in the in the region. So he thought while writing about, you know, the uh, dietary practices in the in the region, he, uh, you know, within the Islamic law, he thought, you know, people are consumed, you know, he wanted, uh, he felt the urge to write about, you know, this new weed that has become popular in the in the tradition. And at the same time, this sort of like, you know, vernacular uh, or contextual references we can see. Uh, and also, Navavi himself was influenced with the, you know, as I argue in the book, with the Mediterranean trade that was happening. And similarly, his commentators from Hijaz, you know, especially those who one scholar that I focus, one commentator that I focus is Ibn Hajar Haitami. He is an interesting figure. He migrated from uh, Egypt to Mecca uh, when the Ottoman after the Ottomans took over both Egypt and and the Hijaz, and he asserted a lot of Meccan uh, flavors to the uh, interpretations of Minhaj. And basically, you know, he had a very Arab centric idea of you know Islam. Uh, and he was often in disagreement with his own colleagues from Egypt who had more, 
you know, linear, what he thought like a very liberal approach towards the interpretations of Sharia. So he took more, you know, uh, yeah, for the lack of better term, conservative or Arab-centric approach in terms of, you know, emphasizing the centrality of Arabic language, uh, Arabic dress code, Arabic, you know, food culture, Arabic uh, ethnicity, you know, all these sort of, you know, he brought all these uh, into the interpretations of the Islamic uh, law or Shafi law, precisely. And what is interesting is that he's doing this from Mecca at a time when Mecca itself was becoming a very cosmopolitan place. So possibly, uh, you know, he felt threatened that the city and the place is becoming very cosmopolitan and the Arabs are losing their identity. And therefore, you know, he started to assert uh, a lot of Arab uh, supremacy or Arab uh, identity into the interpretations of Shafi tradition. And then the Shafi tradition in that way also contributed, um, especially his immediate followers or his own disciples, especially those who came from India as well as Yemen, uh, advanced these ideas uh, precisely because they thought, you know, it catered uh, for their own identity, especially the Hadrami Yemeni scholars. Uh, they thought, you know, the Arab identity was very beneficial and the ways in which Ibn Hajar al-Haytami, the Mac Egyptian Meccan scholar, articulate the Arab centrality, you know, within the interpretations of the Shafi or the Minhaj tradition, you know, uh, it was very beneficial for their own, you know, uh, missionary practices or missionary uh, projects uh, in different parts of the Indian Ocean. So it it was you know in a way, in a way a win win situation both ways for it it uh, so similarly uh, people uh, in different places wherever they uh, interpreted Islamic law uh, while standing within the tradition within the large uh, commandarial tradition they still found innovative ways of you know asserting their own prejudices, their own biases, their own, you know, human, uh, human, uh, you know, urges or demands within the interpretations of divines, uh, divine law. Yeah, so so you've explained for us that, yeah, this pace of change is, is not observable if we just maybe look over a period of 10 or 20 or even necessarily 100 years, but you alluded to the great historian of the Mediterranean, Fernand Braudel, and his notion that, that historical change happens at different paces. Some things change more slowly than than others. And uh, and often for Braudel, it was, as you mentioned, sort of the geographical structures. But you've talked here about sort of, I suppose, legal sort of structures that, you know, that, that only enable change over a longer period. And, and I think that's really helpful, and particularly that you've given us this sense of, of these and these different poles of a of a cosmopolitan tradition of different peoples that across then the Indian Ocean as well as the Middle East who are nonetheless using Arabic to bring in their own local context. So we have this sort of this kind of complexity really between different people using Arabic but using in different regions to assert their regional traditions or interpretations or, or indeed, as you said, biases really or preferences. Perhaps we can look at a, you know, an example of that. I mean, could you give us an, an example, perhaps a short little case study of, you know, how these debates, traditions play out in practice? Yes, definitely. Uh, there are 
a lot of examples like you know for example as i was mainly referring to ibn hajar al haytami who you know is a, one of the most celebrated commentators of minhaj and his text tafatul muhtaj uh, in the text we see a uh, lot of these debates uh, uh, on arabs you know uh, identities for example he says you know the arabs are Uh, closer to the prophet uh, and more honorable and he also says that because allah or god has chosen the arabs over others and has made them distinguished with several qualities and so forth and he says that you know uh, in terms of marry marriageability between a, a non arab and an arab you know the preferences should be always within the arabs and you know all sort of like you know something that we can say you know arab supremacist uh, you know or if not uh, arab racialist approaches uh, and the same goes with you know uh, the ways in which certain letters are pronounced for example and uh, the pro- arabic pronunciation itself he had a lot of thrust on that he said uh, for example if a non arab speaker uh, uh, pronounces an arabic letter So, you know something like maybe fa or ghain you know some of these words uh, or letters which are very difficult even for muslims you know who are not uh, uh, arab speakers or arabic speakers uh, he says that you know their prayers would be invalid you know something that you know his own colleagues or his own contemporaries would disagree and did disagree but he you know he had this sort of uh, arguments that are you know that stood for a very pure tennist approach or very pure arabic you know uh, idea of you know how to practice islam how to and people like you know also he said that you know he also had huge debates uh, in terms of the rasail or small pamphlets but also in his own fatawas in uh, in terms of you know certain festivals celebrated by the uh, non muslim uh arabs you know but and he thought you know these are uh, these should be discouraged whereas his you know uh, contemporary and his colleague from egypt uh, uh, shihabuddin ramli uh, would say no these are should, these should not be discouraged so we see this sort of you know debates happening within the tradition while both of them interpret the same text and also similarly uh, even more interesting is that his own student uh, from india uh although he agreed uh, with his teacher so the student from india from in 16th century uh zainuddin al malebari you know he is well known among uh historians as an uh, as an author of this very famous anti portuguese text called tuhfatul mukta sorry tuhfatul mujahidin or a gift to the warriors who were fighting against the portuguese so uh, this text is widely translated into several european languages but he is also equally known among the shafi muslims as an author of a small text called fathul muin which is a summary of the commentary that ibn hajar al haytami wrote on nabawi's minhaj talibin and in this text even though he uh, agrees most of the time with his teacher uh on issues such as this he also disagrees uh, on several other uh friends so while uh, while he writes a commentary on his uh sorry a summary on his teacher's text he brings in uh, what i would say a lot of indian or uh indian dimensions in interpreting the shafi text 
generation so he brings in like you know uh, something like uh, uh, very tropical issues such as you know certain creatures or certain like you know even creatures that you insects that you would find in between the coconut trees you know he brings in into the shafi discussions or you know uh, beetle leaf chewing the beetle uh, beetle leaf or you know things like that so whether uh, would it affect your prayer uh, or your fasting during the month of ramadan these sort of issues uh, he brings in uh, you know a, tro- a lot of indian ocean or indian or tropical uh, dimensions into the discussions and uh, and when he uh, discuss these issues he disagrees with his teacher not only Uh, you know his immediate teacher but the ender predecessor uh, in ender predecessors within the shafi tradition so in that sense he brings in a non middle eastern or a non arab centric uh, approach to the towards interpreting uh, the shafi law that's helpful again mahmoud because it's it's really important to distinguish isn't it that we have most of these debates are carried on through the the learned legal language of arabic but but as time goes on the arabs no longer it's not only arabs who are using this language if you mention these people who are, who are who are from india from from what's now malaysia or indonesia or indeed even the the southern philippines or and of course to east africa as well many african legal scholars and legal interpreters too so yeah and we 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 get this kind of rich sense i think here of, of the i think of a world historical process really that that as the the arabic tradition goes in into different regions arabs lose control of it let's say or they there were the anxieties that are losing control of it and i think speaking as a historian we this is kind of really helpful because we get this sense that on the one hand and it's and its core goal of of islamic legal thought was trying to figure the how to live in accordance with the will of god because after all that's what islam is it would be submission to the will of god but what is the will of god that's in a sense what the, the the legal theorists are trying to work out what is the will of god so that we can live uh, live in accordance with it and yet we're also seeing then a sort of at a much more grainy human sociological level then these debates about as you've mentioned whether an arab scholar saying well people whose native language is in arabic they can't pronounce the language properly it's sort of a sort of a, an attempt to disenfranchise then these these whether they're indian or malay or whatever else it might be scholars So we we've journeyed a lot across time from the time of Ashafi dying in the year 820 through over the centuries but I'd like to finish as I so often do in Akbar's chamber by turning to the present day. So can I ask you Mahmoud what's the legacy today of this thousand year tradition of Shafi legal thought particularly around the Indian Ocean region? Uh, definitely the tradition is uh, still very alive i was just like just last summer and autumn i was in indonesia uh, traveling through different villages and i was very surprised to see that you know the uh, scholars uh, the traditional ulama in these uh, places still continue men and women continue to teach and study these texts in small villages uh but like you know big gatherings uh, and irrespective of age gender people gather to study uh, these texts on almost uh, daily basis or weekly basis and uh and i was surprised to see that they continued to teach uh, uh the text by let's say imam navavi 
uh, or the commentaries by uh, the Malabari scholar or the Meccan scholar uh, from Egypt. You know, all this sort of textual tradition continue to be very much uh, uh, thriving in, in this place. And another anecdote I would uh, say, you know, I was also in uh, Cape Town uh, in the Malay quarter in South Africa. And uh, the moment I entered the Shafi uh, mosque in the uh, Cape Town, the Imam came down uh, from the stairs holding the Kitab al-Um of Imam Shafi. So this is like an you know, almost uh, more than uh, 1200 or 1300 years later, his text still continued to uh, resonate or continue to appeal to a large uh, number of people. And people often or scholars often say that with the advent of age and uh, sorry, with the, uh, in, with the age of print and steam, you know, many of these old commandarial tradition died out. Whereas we see, you know, the new forms of, you know, whether digital media or virtual media gave space uh, for these textual tradition, commandarial tradition to reborn or to uh, gain different lives and we have a lot of virtual commentaries virtual platforms virtual uh you know uh forms in which the same tradition continue to thrive in different uh, different contexts different countries across the indian ocean and also definitely beyond truly then a conversation or indeed discussions and debates that have not just continued for centuries but as you said continue for 1200 years Professor Mahmoud Korea, thank you so much for speaking to us in Akbar's Chamber. It has been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me once again. Thank you. Dark, 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 dark,